I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Justice Gorsuch's first anniversary, when judges rule from beyond the grave, and we'll interview law professor Jen Mascott. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Justice Gorsuch taking his seat on the Supreme Court. Woohoo! Three cheers All for... All the cheers. Yeah, and three cheers for Neil Gorsuch. Uh, so in the past year, Gorsuch has planted himself squarely in the textualist and originalist camp, aligning most closely with our fave, Justice Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. Gorsuch has made it clear that he's concerned about the federal government's expansion of power and infringement of states' authority. In a dissent in a case dealing with federal courts exercising authority over state law claims, Gorsuch wrote, quote, We've wandered so far from the idea of a federal government of limited and enumerated powers that we've begun to lose sight of what it looked like in the first place. He's also concerned about states infringing on the rights of individuals, an issue permeating several free speech cases this term, including Minnesota Voters Alliance, NIFLA versus Becerra, and Masterpiece Cake Shop. And Gorsuch's clear fidelity to the Constitution has made liberal court watchers apoplectic, and he's been under a microscope since his name first topped Trump's shortlist. And that scrutiny has only increased since his confirmation last year. As we've discussed in previous episodes, seeking to sow seeds of discord, NPR's Nina Totenberg claimed to have inside information about a growing feud between Gorsuch and Justice Elena Kagan. And Justice Thomas dismissed those rumors in an interview last fall. Liberal commentators, including The New Yorker's Jeff Tubin and others, criticized Gorsuch for asking too many questions during oral argument. And I think he also has criticized Justice Thomas for asking too few. So... <laughs> Jeff, we'd like to know, what do you think is the appropriate number? He's Goldilocks of, when yeah, it comes to oral argument questions. Questions, yeah. But he also faulted him for frequently citing the Constitution and expressing his interest in getting back to first principles. And elitist liberal academics pour over his opinions, looking for anything to nitpick and encourage people to mock his writing style using the silly hashtag Gorsuch style on Twitter. But taking these petty jabs at the justice shows just how little substantive criticism they can muster. In his first year, Gorsuch has shown that he works hard, writes clearly, and cares deeply about getting the law right. When he spoke last fall at the Federalist Society's National Lawyers Convention, he said to great applause, including from Elizabeth and me, <laughs> Tonight I can report that a person can be both a publicly committed originalist and textualist and be confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Originalism has regained its place at the table of constitutional interpretation, and textualism in the reading of statutes has triumphed, and neither one is going anywhere on my watch. Now, we think that is something to celebrate. It certainly is. Well, the liberal lion Judge Stephen Reinhardt passed away at the end of March, but this week the Ninth Circuit released an en banc opinion that Judge Reinhardt wrote. It's led to discussion about judges ruling from beyond the grave. In a National Law Journal article, Bill Souter, who's the retired clerk of the Supreme Court, said that he didn't think there was a written-down rule at the Supreme Court, but the practice was before an, op an opinion is issued, it's not actually an opinion. And he said it can be pulled at the last minute if justices change their minds or make revisions. At least a handful of circuit courts disagree with the Supreme Court on this practice and have allowed judges to rule from beyond the grave in cases out of the Third Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuits, but there may be others as well. So in a footnote, the Ninth Circuit wrote, Prior to his death, Judge Reinhardt fully participated in this case and authored this opinion. The majority opinion and all concurrences were final, and voting was completed by the en banc court prior to his death. 
So as Elizabeth mentioned, this isn't the first time a court has issued an opinion that included the vote of a deceased judge. Last December, the Ninth Circuit issued an opinion that included the judge, uh, the vote of Judge Harry Pragerson about a month after he passed away. And in that case, Judge Pragerson cast the determinative vote, and without that vote, the panel would have been split. And this practice seems problematic for a number of reasons, uh, the foremost of which is probably that a judge can change his mind up to the point um, that an opinion's released. And we sometimes hear stories of where a judge will circulate a dissent and it will make another judge change, change his mind and change his vote. And it also seems like there could be a transparency problem with knowing exactly which parts of an opinion a judge agreed with. And, you know, what if a judge just informally says to the author of an opinion, I liked most of your opinion and I plan to vote for it. Does that count? Um, we're unsure of the practices of, of some of these courts. That doesn't seem to be the case here, since the the Ninth Circuit says the majority opinion had been finalized, uh, but we can certainly see how this could cause problems. But moving on, we recently spoke with Jen Mascott. Jennifer Mascott is an assistant professor at the Scalia Law School. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Jen. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. So you teach administrative law and have written a lot about the subject. How did you get into this area of the law? Well, I mean, I can start by saying I had a great admin law professor at GW, John Duffy, who has written a number of articles in administrative law and patent law. And then I had the terrific experience of being able to be a clerk on the D.C. Circuit for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, his first term there. And so, of course, it goes without saying. He is a tremendous legal mind and mentored us, and we got to wrestle with and really think through a lot of administrative laws while some other issues that year. And then I had the chance to teach for several years as an adjunct professor at GW Law School, where I taught administrative law and um, just wrestled a lot with the issues through Gary Lawson's casebook on the subject and uh, love it. Who can't who can't love ad law, right? It <laughs> touches on all the great constitutional issues. So you wrote a law review article, Who Are Officers of the United States, challenging the way numerous government officials are currently appointed. You argue that the phrase officer in the appointments clause of Article 2 of the Constitution is much broader than the modern understanding. And this is an issue before the Supreme Court this term, in a, in a case before the court this term. So what is the original public meaning of this term? And if the court adopts your interpretation, what would that mean for our government? Yes. So I um, spent a year or two looking at a lot of the 18th century evidence about the meaning of the Appointments Clause, specifically the phrase officers of the United States. And the evidence to me suggested that the phrase was not really a term of art, but covered really any federal level officer and that the term officer really encompasses any official with ongoing responsibility for carrying out a statutory duty. So basically, if Congress was authorizing the executive branch to do something and you're in an ongoing position, Position and you help to carry that out, then you were thought of at the time as an officer. And I mean, so I think today in the modern understanding of how agencies are structured, we sort of recoil from this broad definition because there's this idea of wanting to have independence and expertise and this idea that if there's too much uh, democratic accountability, somehow that will harm those values. But at the founding, there was really this kind of different idea that if there was transparency, if the department head or the president had to sign off on 
all of the people hired under their direction or most of the people hired under their direction, that they would be accountable for picking high quality officials and that this would actually be the best protection against patronage. So it sounds gallingly broad, but the other thing that I noticed in researching the issue is that I do think that the constitutional officer status can be compatible with a good portion of the procedures that we currently have in place for picking civil servants. So for example, it, it you know, Congress has the power in Article Two to establish offices by law. And so from the very beginning, they've been imposing some um, requirements on who can serve as an officer. And so I think there's still room for there being merit-based requirements and limitations that Congress can impose there on how we pick people. We're, you, know, you can still have a, a merit-based system, at least to some extent. Um, and so my article, which recently came out, uh, wrestles with this a little bit and talks about what portions of the current selection system might be problematic and what might still work. But at the end of the day, the president or department heads have to take responsibility for the hiring of folks under their leadership. It's definitely a great article, and we will certainly share it on our SCOTUS 101 Twitter account. And we'll also um, watch to see if it's cited in the the opinion in this case. Yeah, that would be pretty exciting. So you are a member, a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States, also known as ACUS. So tell us a little bit about ACUS and what your role is as a public member. So ACUS is an independent federal agency, basically, that makes recommendations to other agencies about how to continue improving efficiency um, and excellence in government procedures. But, you know, every proposal that ACUS puts forward is recommendatory, and it's just a wonderful body. I think it has about 100 voting members made up of, of folks from, from the other administrative agencies, some some academics, some folks uh, who are part of the regulated community. Justice Scalia used to be the chair of ACUS and held a number of positions there. And it's just a wonderful collegial body trying to think about what are ways in which um, – we can make recommendations that would help to streamline or make it easier for administrative agencies to operate and carry out their mission. So as you mentioned, you clerked for Judge Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. Tell us about working for him. Well, working for Judge Kavanaugh was really terrific. I mean, he's one of the greatest legal minds in the country and very principled. And um, I just learned an awful lot about him. I mean, an awful lot about the law from him and how to just think through legal issues and break things down. Um, You know, he's very personable and a great mentor and um, makes a lot of great efforts to um, to keep up with his clerks, one of whom I understand today, a former clerk, was just nominated for a seat on the 11th Circuit, uh, Justice Britt Grant. So she's a wonderful former Kavanaugh clerk. But with Judge Kavanaugh, he's so efficient. The, you know, I learned so much from him, but I also had to get very comfortable with knowing that it would be impossible to keep up with him and his understanding of the case. Because it was very <laughs> much the experience where, you know, you would go away and you'd look at the briefs and the facts and the case law and come in and, and, and have a meaningful discussion about the law. And he always in a very small fraction of the time that it took us was totally up to speed on the record and had very um, insightful questions. And so we just had to be comfortable with the fact that we're participating in a conversation, but not bringing anything close to the mastery of it that uh, that he seemed to be able to manage in a really short period of time. So you also clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. What's your favorite memory of your clerkship with him? Well, I think several things clerking for Justice Thomas. I mean, as those who have met him know, he's just an extremely personable, warm uh, person. And uh, his his wife, Mrs. Thomas, is that way, too. And so um, one of the things that sticks out in my mind is at the end of the clerkship, they have the clerks out to their home for dinner. And that was just a very nice experience, being welcomed into their home and getting to know both of them and having this sense that, um, you know, that they really are wanting to serve as, as mentors and are out to try to help you just become a better person 
person and a better lawyer. Another favorite memory of mine from the clerkship also involves the end of the term when we would go to the justice takes former clerks on a trip in his big bus up to Gettysburg at the end <laughs> yeah. of the term. And so that always puts things in context because, you know, you're you're thinking through the war and the battle that happened at Gettysburg and how the outcome of that really helped to expand the hope of liberty and opportunity for um, more Americans. And then the other thing I really loved about the clerkship, in addition to the many uh, aspects of the law and reasoning that I learned about from Justice Thomas, is just the real sense of collegiality and transparency and teamwork that he instills in all of his clerks. When I clerked for him, I already had my first daughter and she had gotten sick and I had to, my husband couldn't take off work. I had to take off work one day and it happened to be right before some of the infamous cert pool memos <laughs> were due. And so with all the other work going on, I still had some work to do on mine. And, you know, without missing a beat, my co-clerks volunteered to take that on and finish up that work so I could go be where I needed to be and with the understanding that I would help do them the same favor later, later on. But Justice Thomas really sets that tone, I think, from the very top that you just, you're working as a team. There's no competition there. Everybody's trying to do their best in the job and to help the court in any way that needs to be done. Speaking of collegiality, you you work with two of your former co-clerks today, don't you? I do. I do uh, partner up with, uh, yes, Will Consovoy and Patrick Strawbridge are both involved in some of the clinics and run and help to start the clinics uh, that we have at George Mason dealing with the Supreme Court and the administrative practices. And so I get a chance to kind of help them out a little bit with that, which is great. That's wonderful. Justice Sotomayor recently said of Justice Thomas, I just love that man as a person. He's the same value towards human beings that I have, despite our differences. And so while it seems like the justices are clearly a collegial bunch, Justice Thomas has weathered more than his fair share of criticisms from the out, from outside the court. So did you learn anything from him about how to hold your head high? I mean, I think the wonderful thing uh, about Justice Thomas and what I learned from him is this idea of treating everybody with respect, everybody in an honest way. And so when you're... Um, reasoning legally in a case, you're disagreeing maybe with the idea, but you're never attacking the person. And so I think what you'll find in his uh, opinions that he writes is there's a lot of intellectual rigor. And so I think from being in chambers, I learned to really, you really need to reason thoroughly through the issue and make sure that you're trying to help the justice do excellent work and reaching the right outcome and being honest about the counter arguments and, and facing them and just trying to reason to the best legal outcome or most accurate legal outcome possible. Possible. And if you do that, then that work will stand, even if someone disagrees with the outcome or would have or would have gone a different way. You've, you've got the explanation there. You've tried to tighten it up analytically. And in your tone, you're not attacking one's character. You're always just wrestling together on the law and what's the right answer under the Constitution. So after your clerkships, you took some time off to focus on being a mom. So tell us, how did you get back into your career? Well, I was really blessed with having a lot of kind of opportunities throughout my career so far when I when I could sort of take a break and then get back into things. So I have four children, so there's kind of a lot there over the years <laughs> to balance with taking time off and then getting back into it. But the first thing is that I already had kind of a one-year break in between uh, my clerkship for Judge Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas. And so during that uh, one year, my first daughter was born. And there was just kind of, I mean, all, there was a lot of hard work getting back into the schedule of clerking at the court. It was nice to be able to have that time to at least spend a few months 
first kind of learning the ropes of being a mom. And then I just have been blessed to have bosses or work for people like Justice Thomas who are very family friendly in the sense that Justice Thomas was never about FaceTime. It was always more about getting the work done. And, you know, my spouse is really uh, supportive and great. And so we just would work it out where I could be with my daughter as much as possible and then in the court when I needed to be and just, uh, you know, work a lot in the evenings as well. And then after that really rigorous year, I was able to take some time being at home and then working part-time as an adjunct teaching at GW Law School. And so it was great to have that opportunity to really kind of stay in the game and stay up with the law and be teaching students and have that accountability of having to know administrative law in particular really well to go face the students a few times a week, but also to have the flexibility to kind of be around home when I needed to. And then most recently, I did a fellowship, which allowed me to to write and do some scholarship that's gotten me back into the position now that I have at Mason. So it's been a fun journey. That's great. And we have one final question that we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I would have to say on this one right now with the Lucia case coming up, my interest maybe is a little bit parochial here. And then I think I would say Chief Justice Marshall, because he, when he was riding circuit, wrote an opinion in this case, United States versus Maurice, where he talks about what an officer is and says officer is defined to be a public charge or employment. And he who performs the duties of an office is an officer. And so it's intriguing. And um, different parties in the case have different takes on what he meant by that. So it'd be great just to have a conversation to talk with him about the, the structure of the government government at that time, how the the justices themselves understood uh, some of the provisions of the Constitution. And of course, that wouldn't necessarily mean that's, you know, what the provision meant. But uh, interesting to get a historical perspective on some of these um, constitutional requirements that today are still causing so much rigorous debate in society. Well, it sounds like that would be a great conversation to have. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all very much. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Gorsuch-style edition, (laughs) and I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. First question. Who did Neil Gorsuch clerk for on an appeals court? Oh, on an appeals court. I can give you some hints. Yeah, I need a hint. It's the D.C. Circuit, and he is still a senior judge. Oh, I'm trying to think of who was at his hearing. It wasn't Santel, was it? Was it Santel? Yes. Okay. He clerked for a judge, a senior judge, David Santel, in the D.C. Circuit before going to the Supreme Court to clerk for Byron White and Anthony Kennedy. Next question. Who introduced Neil Gorsuch at his confirmation hearing last year? There were three people. Can you name all three? Yeah. Neil Ketchall. That's correct. Introduced him. The Neils. And who else? I don't know. Maybe, I assume his, his home state senator's. Yes. Who are, who are? Oh my gosh! Um, if you know Corey the, Gardner, if you know the state, that's good enough. Corey, Corey Gardner <laughs> and I don't remember the Democrat's Ma- name. M- Michael Bennett from Colorado. Okay. Yeah. Good job. Well done. Third question: How many majority opinions has Gorsuch authored at the Supreme Court so far? Ooh, I don't know if I know a number. Well, his first opinion was unanimous, so it's at least one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was last term, right? Oh, that was last. Yes, that was last term. And the question is... How many total? Last term and this term? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say like four. Close. He's authored three. So Henson versus Santander Consumer. That was the mentioned. first one. That was the first one. Uh, Texas versus New Mexico and Murphy versus Smith. So you're cool. pretty, pretty close. Fourth question. Who replaced Gorsuch on the 10th Circuit? Uh, Allison Ide. Yes. Uh, She's awesome. Yes. Former Colorado Supreme Court Justice, now 10th Circuit Judge Allison Ide. And fifth and final question, what did Gorsuch inherit from Justice Scalia? Oh, I know. 
<laughs> uh, I can't remember its name. That Leroy, Leroy the Elk. Yes, Leroy the gigantic stuffed elk head uh, <laughs> apparently came from a 900-pound elk that the, the justice <laughs> took down himself. I think and, no one really wanted it is how he got it. Yeah. It's, well, like, huge. I'm I'm glad that Justice Gorsuch has it. And, <laughs> and he said, turns out we're both native Coloradans. We both received a rather shocking summons to Washington, and neither of us is ever going to forget Justice Scalia. Aw, that's, <laughs> that's very sweet. Uh, well, I think you did a great job, and thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.